Hey everybody, Ezra David Romero here. This is our last episode of Taholand. I know it's really sad, but this season has to come to an end. And to celebrate this ending, we held a podcast taping in Southlake. This is a shorter version of that 90-minute event. We invited listeners to join us at a resort called Edgewood Tahoe. There were these floor-to-ceiling windows, and you could see this huge panorama of the lake from the audience. And I was told a few times, flocks of birds flew behind me as the sun set over the mountains. This live version of Tahoe Land is a little different and a little longer than our other episodes. You'll hear from scientists, city leaders, and a story or two from locals who feel they've been left out of the climate conversation. I hope you enjoy it. aren't just theories anymore. I don't want the snow to go away. Yes, Tahoe will change. I kind of feel like that endangered pika. Tahoe doesn't control climate change. It's a victim of it. From Capital Public Radio, this is Tahoe Land. Had always snowed by the third weekend in September, but that doesn't happen anymore. I want to see our forest restored so that Tahoe doesn't burn the way Paradise did. Chasing the snow is a huge part. It's about the lake. That's why everyone's here. There are a lot of green lakes. There aren't very many blue ones. Welcome to Tahoe Land. Hey everybody, I'm Ezra David Romero. I just want to say thank you so much for letting me be part of your community, getting locals discounts sometimes over a beer, things like that. Before we begin, I just want you to take a look out behind us. It's the lake, that's why we're all here. Our team began this journey a year ago. We had this one big question we wanted to answer because climate change is affecting everything in Tahoe. Casinos, bears, wildfire, your communities, your homes, the shrubs outside of your houses. And that one big question is, will the Tahoe we know that we love, that we breathe in, that, we, that exists here, be here in a generation or two? We were surprised by all the science happening that was going on, everything from Jeff Schlado at UC Davis to DRI to all these places. Even the most basic optimistic projections for Tahoe are a different place. More rain instead of snow, more tourists, more cars, more bare human encounters, everything we've laid out in the podcast. And so tonight, we're going to talk to some more experts about that. But in all the other episodes, we looked at this dire situation. And we're going to talk about the solutions that are out there. We're also going to hear from a Native American woman and some youth, two populations that are often overlooked in this climate change debate. But first, I want you to hear from the godfather of Lake Tahoe, Clarity. He has been here for 61 years studying the Lake Clarity here, and that's Dr. Charles Goldman with UC Davis, and here he is. He's gonna tell us a poem about Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the name of the poem uh, is I Dream a Dream of Tahoe, and it pretty well expresses uh, how I feel and how I feel so many of us feel about the lake. I dream a dream of Tahoe from wherever I may go. I dream a dream of Tahoe in sunshine or in snow. I see its cobalt waters in the alpine afterglow. 
and I'll return to Tahoe from wherever I may go. Yes, I'll return to Tahoe, despite where winds may blow, where pine and aspen forests take many years to grow. The air is clear and brilliant where Sierra meets the sky. It fills me with a sadness when I must say goodbye. But if we keep its blueness, this lake will never die, and the children of our children will never need to cry. Thank you. And at some point, Dr. Goldman passed the baton on to someone else with as much zeal for the lake as he does. And this guy's from Australia. He has a great accent. And I'm talking about Jeff Schlado. He's the director of the Tahoe Environmental Research Center at, with UC Davis. Hey, thanks for joining me, Jeff. It's a pleasure as always, Ezra. So, Jeff, we started off this podcast with this sort of dark, dismal scene of what Lake Tahoe looks like. When you come over Echo Pass, the year was 2099, and I came and put my feet in the water. Let's hear a little bit of that, and let's hear what you have to say. I finally plop my feet in the water. It's not that icy, alpine cold I remember. It's really warm. Cigarette butts, bottle caps, and even a bag of chips are floating in the waves. When I was a kid, the lake was so clear, you could see every grain of sand. But now, between the trash and the weeds, it's so murky, I can't even see my toes. This hasn't stopped people from filling every inch of the beach with towels and fold-up chairs. There are so many boats, jet skiers, and paddleboarders competing for just a spot on the water. It's like the busiest 4th of July ever. Everything's changed, even the color of the lake. It's almost lost all of its cobalt blue hue. It's turning green. So Jeff, we heard so many responses about this on Twitter, Instagram, emails, all these places, and they weren't all in agreement. Some thought it was too dire. Some thought, oh, that's not really gonna happen. But other people said, hey, these things are already going on. When you come over Echo Pass, sometimes it's already smoky. Sometimes there's already trash in the water. There's already microplastics in the water. When you close your eyes, what does the future look like to you? Well, that's certainly one future. Um, and it's, it, it could happen. And it's not just uh, the view of a pessimist, it's, it's what science is telling us. It's what uh, models are predicting based on, on carbon emissions. But, but the fact that we have these, these dire predictions and visions is good. So we know how bad it could be. And I think that's a very powerful weapon for us to, to use. If we don't want that to be the future, then there are some things we can do uh, locally. There are things that need to be done globally, but we're, we're, we're armed with, with knowing what we don't want. And we based a lot of this off of this draft climate change vulnerability assessment. That is a mouthful. And I think what surprised me was that even in the most optimistic view of if, we, if the whole world stops polluting in the way they are today, Tahoe will still be affected. Like, talk to me about this range of possibilities. Yeah, well, well, the warming part of it is, is here to stay for a long time. So, no, we, we, we may not be a great ski destination in 50 years. Um, there is going to be a lot more rain. The streams are going to be running much sooner. Uh, but the things that I think people value about Tahoe, its, it's iconic appearance, its blue water, that doesn't have to go with it. I mean, that's, that's where the options are. Um, in, in my humble opinion. We talk about that blue, pristine, clear water. You know, the last moment of the scene, we say it could turn green, and you and I have had many conversations about this, but 
Could that really happen? And if it does, is it like an ecological disaster? Yeah. Yeah, it so is. So yes? It is. <laughs> In the interest of time, yes. Um, it could. And, and what happens with lakes is that often they change very quickly. Um, it's not going to, the progression to 2099 isn't going to be a little bit of the same every year. So it's not this incremental change. No, it's suddenly there's going to be a 30-year drought. There's going to be well, a term that was popularized this morning in the, um, I, the, the IPCC report, these heat waves in the ocean. We've had heat waves at Tahoe, heat waves in the water, not the air. And they're going to become more common and warmer. And so species of algae that we've sort of haven't really experienced in the middle of the lake could be there. Uh, but we know that now. So millions and millions and millions of dollars have been spent on keeping Lake Tahoe clear, on wildfire prevention, on all these things in the lake. Um, but how is climate change affecting this process? Is the needle moving on these projects? Uh, a, a lot of them were, were designed for a different set of conditions. I mean, they were, a lot of the capital investments were made 20 years ago. Uh, and there were conditions that engineers designed for. Uh, a certain amount of rain um, in, in an hour. We're going to get in excess of that amount of rain, we believe, in the future. We're going to have this rain falling on what snow we have. So suddenly, all these projects may not be the perfect projects or, or no longer optimal. And so that's, that's going to require reinvestment. It's going to require possibly different approaches. Do you think Tahoe will be able to adapt? Well, I mean, look at the audience. This is an incredibly adaptable audience. I don't think these people are here tonight because they want to see this go away. Uh, and I think that's what it's going to take. We talk about resilience of the, of the environment and resilience of projects, but I think it's, it's human resilience that is a large part of it, with people to say, no, we've, we've had enough. Are we going to do more? Are we going to change our personal habits and how we get to work? Things like that. Uh, which isn't going to stop climate change globally, but if you think about every community doing that, that will make a difference. So we're going to talk to you a little bit later in another panel, but it seems like everyone and everything is adapting here, whether it's a casino, which we found out they're working together, or it's people working around the lake, around lake, lake water clarity issues. Any last thoughts? Yeah, we did put the fear of something into them. Certainly that wasn't the intention, but the fact that we did is, in some ways, producing some good consequences. People are, are realizing, you talk about 2099. It's not going to happen in 2099. It's, it's happening today. It's happening next year. So, and everybody in this room and everybody in the Tahoe Basin knows that. So that's, to me, that's a, a reason to be optimistic. Well, thank you, Jeff, for sharing your knowledge with us and taking us out on the Turk boat and all these things. We'll hear more from you later. And now we're going to hear from someone who's both a researcher and a member of the Native American community in Tahoe. Me angawa mibi'i, duat le ume degum dialei, bawalu de deilei, wa washu ete shemukei, wading dibugayai, ashkadamo baga angawi. Welcome everybody uh, to Washu territory. This is the ancestral homeland of the Washu people. 
My name is Helen Fillmore. I'm part of the Washu tribe, and I recently graduated with my master's degree in hydrology from the University of Nevada, Reno. I currently work there as a researcher for the Native Waters on Arid Lands Climate Resiliency Project. This summer, I had a chance to work in the Tahoe Basin, and it really was a dream come true for me. I turned 28 in August, and I joked that this summer was my 20th year of research experience here. Because you see, I was one of those school children who met Dr. Charles Goldman on a field trip when I was eight years old. We rode the infamous John LeConte research boat out into what felt like the middle of the lake. We watched the Secchi disc disappear into the clear blue water. He and the other researchers on board talked about their observations. They talked about the declining clarity of the water and the changes to uh, the microorganism populations. This was our science lesson for that week. Prior to the field trip, we were learning from our elders about the creation of the lake, according to our legends. We were learning about the changes that they observed in their lifetimes and our responsibility to the area. As Washu people, we don't see our sense of self as being separate from these lands. When I introduced myself in our language, I said, Bawalu de Te'ile'i. Bawalu refers to the area east of Tahoe. De Te'ile'i is directly translated as the land I am. This is how I was taught to describe where I grew up. In this way, we don't identify ourselves as being from somewhere we identify ourselves as being of a place. We know that our health and our well-being is inextricably linked to the health and well-being of this lake and the ecosystems that surround it. As a researcher, I build upon the observations and the works of others with the hope of solving problems that haven't been solved yet. As Washu people, our observations of degradation and declining lake clarity didn't start in the 1960s when Dr. Goldman started his observations. Our observations of this area started back when our elders were just children, back in the early 1900s, who also heard stories from their parents and grandparents about what life was like at the lake back in the 1800s. And we also learned from the legends that have been passed down for thousands of years. When I think about the projected conditions of this lake in the face of climate change, it's important to also think about the past, about the magnitude and severity of the losses that my elders have had to endure in their lifetimes. And my heart breaks for them. Declining clarity is only a symptom of a much larger issue. And while we're all working to restore the surrounding ecosystems to healthy conditions and planning for the future, I think we're gravely short-sighted in our efforts. With so many resources going to the protection of the lake, our elders ask, why aren't we doing more? It's because we have a disconnect. We have a lack of continuity of experiences in this basin. We heard about a potential condition in 2099. That condition described to us sounds horrible 2019 is that current condition of what our elders experienced. The degradation that they experienced is already happening. The degradation, I guess, that they 
they couldn't fathom is already our current condition. We evaluate loss on the scale of our own personal experiences, and we plan for climate change in the context of our own lifetimes. And this isn't good enough. This is where we have a lot to learn from the original people of this land. Washu people have existed in one of the most variable climates in the world for thousands of years. We know hot summers and cold, cold winters. We know droughts and we know snow. Inherent in our language and culture are the lessons and the teachings of how to care for this place, for this lake and for the people who depend on it. We know resilience in the face of climate change. Right now, young people around the world are organizing and are pleading with all of us to take action against climate change because to them, taking action isn't about making sacrifices, Taking action is about providing hope for our future generations. Thank you. To continue this discussion, here are four experts with focuses on different issues that impact Tahoe. Devin Middlebrook. He's the Sustainability Tourism Coordinator with the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, and he's on the South Lake Tahoe City Council. Stephanie Capetto, she's a forest wildlife biologist with the Tahoe Basin Management Unit. Helen Fillmore, she's an off-reservation councilman for the Washoe Tribal Council and a faculty researcher for the University of Nevada, Reno. She studies Native Americans in the basin. And Chris Anthony, he's the Cal Fire Division Chief for the Tahoe area. Let's start with you, Devin. You emailed me saying there are some good things that have happened in Tao. Don't focus just on the bad. There's been some good. What, are, what, what is that good? Yeah, so taking a, a very narrow time view uh, as compared to Helen, uh, really it was about 20 years ago in 1997 when the partners came together and saw that Lake Clarity wasn't getting better. Our forests were getting more overloaded with timber and, and fire risk was growing. Our aging infrastructure that was built in the 50s and 60s, the rundown motels, weren't being improved, weren't being remodeled. And it was really this tipping point where we had to do something drastic to save the lake. Um, and that's when then President Bill Clinton came to Tahoe for the first ever environmental summit. And from there, a great partnership of over 50 organizations and agencies, many of the people you talked to in making this podcast, came together and said, we're going to protect Tahoe. We're going to preserve it, um, and, and here's our goal. And since then, over the last 20 years, that partnership has invested over $2 billion in the restoration of Lake Tahoe's environment, res restoring the past damages to the land. Um, and we've achieved things like slowing the loss of clarity. We've treated hundreds of thousands of acres of forest, forest for, for wildfire. We've built hundreds of miles of bike trails. Um, so those are just some of the things that this partnership over the last 20 years has, has come together and done. The other part of your job is working in South Lake Tahoe as a city council member. That just happened less than a year ago. So we go to this dire place in the, in the episode where we drive into South Lake Tahoe. What, where, is, where are cities and communities sort of in this, in this perspective? Yeah, I really think we are in the, hopefully in the driver's seat of our future and our destiny, and it's up to us today. As you said, the 2019 the changes we've already seen and are already seeing are gonna continue. So we know that that's happening and this is really our, 
our call to action. And, and it is up to our local communities, the city of South Lake Tahoe, the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, everyone here today in the audience listening at home on this podcast to do those small actions, work towards being better for the environment, and, and really push for that. You came in on a platform of climate change. What are you doing now with, with this role? How are you following that up? Yeah, so one of the really big things that I'm pushing for as a council member is reducing our contribution to greenhouse gas emissions, reducing our carbon footprint, really trying to push and, and going carbon neutral. As a city, the city of South Lake Tahoe is currently installing uh, solar panels at our airport that will offset the energy usage there. We also have a commitment to go 100% renewable electricity by 2032, and that's just part of the equation. But we're reducing our emissions, and then on the other side, we're working to make sure we're more resilient, something Chris Anthony will talk about, and making sure we're prepared for wildfire, making sure we're prepared for disasters. Helen pointed to this disconnect. Is all, are all those things enough when, this, when you have global greenhouse gas emissions and all this happening locally? Um, I was actually really profoundly touched by her words. Um, they really struck with me. And, and you know what, maybe everything we're doing isn't enough, but if we don't do it, someone else isn't going to do it. The next town over is not going to do it. So by doing it here, we are leading and showing an example that Lake Tahoe can be a global leader towards climate change, towards sustainability, and, and hopefully prove a case that if we can do it, everyone can do it and, and will do it. Helen, you pointed to that disconnect in the end. What were you alluding to? What, give me some more depth to that. One of the things that is really important to me is reconnecting my community back into the basin. It is really hard to access this area. It's really hard to access our traditional territories and practice our traditional practices that have been really important to the health of this basin for thousands of years. Um, and so reconnecting ourselves as Washu people into the basin, reconnecting our language, our cultural practices to the area is something that I think is profoundly important to the overall health and that we can all learn from. We can all learn about how we are inextricably linked to our environment. 20 years ago, when you would say that, people would think that's hippie, that's not necessary, but now we're looking at catastrophic events due to our lack of protection our lack of understanding how connected we are to our environment and um, recognizing that we do have a responsibility to the places that we come from to take care of it. It will also take care of us in the future as well. Speaking of the environment, we had an episode all about bears. And it was my favorite episode and my least favorite episode. Favorite because I love bears, least favorite because the future under climate change for bears is, isn't good. You know, it's like they may suffer at the hands of climate change. Stephanie Capetto, you are a person who loves bears. You work, with, you work in managing them. What's going on in bear management moving forward? We talked about how there's not this consensus around trash, and what are the next steps? Our agencies in the Forest Service is really emphasizing trying to take the stress off the bears that comes from humans being in bear country. And the primary way we can do that, we're doing it now and we're moving forward, is by trying to use methods to deter bears from accessing human foods and human sources of food and garbage. Um, and so the Forest Service has been uh, working diligently to make sure all of our campsites are equipped with bear boxes that safely store um, scented items and food. We're making sure that 
we implement forest closure orders so that if people don't follow the rules to store their food and their garbage properly, they can be cited. There's some enforcement. Um, we're also working diligently with our staff and um, our campground hosts to educate both ourselves working in bear country and the public. Um, as we've mentioned already, we have to take care of our land and the wildlife and natural resources that depend on this land. And part of that is by educating the people that live here and the many people that come to visit here. Chris, you are looking at wildfire. Is Tahoe fire ready? A fire could have a, um, a major impact on the Lake Tahoe Basin. And what I've been seeing is that these fires, um, whether they come out of the larger landscape, you know, the forested area into communities, or whether they start in a community and then travel out into um, a forested area, the way that we need to look at protecting not only our communities, but our, our landscapes, such as our forests, the two are completely intertwined. Um, you, can't, um, you can't just work in one and ignore the other. Um, we've done a lot of work in the wildland urban interface among all the agencies, um, but now it's time to expand that and look at the larger landscape in general because right now what we're seeing is not going to be resilient to um, the changes that we already have here today and, and for what's projected to come. We talk about these large-scale things you want to do in our fire episode. We have you all here because these different areas because you're interconnected, right? You're all dealing with these human impacts. How can you move forward outside of your little boundaries of what you're doing together? Any of you could answer. I think it's about events like this and, and this Tahoe Land podcast and bringing people together and having these conversations and not sitting at your desk and typing away on the computer, but actually getting out and having the conversations and listening to the words. Again, listening to Helen's words earlier, that profoundly touched me, and I'm already trying to think about how that affects how I look at Tahoe, and, and I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't been at this event. So breaking down those barriers and having those conversations and, and talking to one another in this digital age is uh, definitely a way forward and, and stepping forward towards that. And I think we're there in some respects in terms of the interagency collaboration that occurs not only among the public entities, but the nonprofit groups, um, other private stakeholders, obviously the Washoe tribe. Um, I, th I think we all understand what the issues are. Um, what's, what's important is that you know, we, we identify those issues and make progress on them. And, and Helen, actually, what, what she said actually um, profoundly hit me as well in terms of thinking about, um, in some cases, we already are in that worst case scenario. And, um, and, and thinking about you know, the urgency of the situation ahead of us. It's, this isn't something that we need to tackle 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road. This is an issue that we need to really diligently address today. Helen, how do we incorporate all, how do we incorporate the Native American perspective into fires and the bears and the cities? Like, what's your vision? As Washu people, for thousands of years, we've taken care of each other. We've taken care of other families. We made sure that everybody was provided for and we're willing to work together. And so I think that no matter who we are, what we're doing, we've got to look at the table and see who's missing and try to fill that space. And bears? We're still identifying new groups that we can work with locally and more broadly across the Sierra region to try and figure out what's working. What's, what's working to help people take these measures 
individually and, and be proactive and not be lazy in bear country? What's working as a manager? What's working as a state agency? And so I, I really see collaboration is key. Last question for all of you, which we got over and over and over on social media. Derek Pate said, he's from Sacramento, he says, have you come across any proposals at one time to make Lake Tahoe National Park? It seems like an obvious choice because it's unique, natural wonder. I think the real reason people ask about a national park is because they think it is a solution to the threat of loving Tahoe to death. And I don't think becoming a national park would necessarily just instantly solve those problems. I think the tools and strategies and collaboration we have today offer the same path forward that a theoretical national park could. Any other thoughts from you? I think in terms of bears, the, the parks that I'm aware of in this area really do have a great policy. They have that benefit of having one, one uh, rule. Whereas in the basin, we do struggle with multiple ordinances um, that aren't blanket. That said, and as Devin's pointing out, we're moving there. We're, we're doing a lot that we can to try and have um, consistency across this area. Fire? I would say that a lot of the challenges that you see um, here, you also see in national parks as well. And um, the only difference is, um, obviously, the, the federal government owns, I think, about 78% of the land base in Tahoe. What we have that uh, maybe a national park doesn't is we have leverage among a lot of different agencies to be able to address some of these issues that we're facing. Helen, last thoughts? I think that the idea of it being a national park is something that could have been approached in the early 1900s, 1950s, when those efforts were being made. But I, I think that, um, you know, I don't want to discount the opportunities for collaboration that we have by having so many different um, agencies and partners, landowners, whatever it is. To clear the air, it was talked about to become a national park, and it was deemed too far gone to be one. So thank you all for your insights and being part of this conversation. It's really great to hear all of your thoughts, and now we're going to hear from two young climate activists from Truckee. Hi everyone, my name is Evan Anderson. And I'm Ben Anderson. We're 16-year-old student athletes and passionate environmental advocates in Truckee. Last week, we organized a climate strike in our hometown of Truckee, California, in conjunction with a global climate strike demanding action be taken at the UN Climate Summit. We were overwhelmed with the amount of support of, in our community and how many people went out showing their support. Since we can remember, our mother has taught us to sacrifice convenience for sustainability. Whether it be picking up litter a few extra steps away or asking a stranger to turn off their idling car, Mother Nature has always come first. We are also avid Nordic skiers, where we have seen the firsthand effects of climate change on a local level. In February, our cross-country ski team went on a memorable ski after school. We ascended a steep hill approaching a jaw-dropping view of Donner Lake. Admiring the snow-capped evergreens adorning the landscape, while the sun was setting ahead, we floated, or for some of us tumbled, our way down the powdered hillside. We had laughs and a whole lot of fun. This scenery, the nippy cold, the smiles on our faces, this is the reason why we are here. You see, this wonderful memory could be one of the last of its kind. In the 10 years we've lived here, we have experienced severe drought followed by an unmanageable amount of precipitation. And it's not only snow sport athletes in the Tahoe region that are affected. Disadvantaged citizens and sensitive wildlife are hit hardest by climate change, often struggling without a voice. 
First, our environmental awareness came to our personal lives. We are vegan, low waste, and low energy consumers. We joined, our, we joined our high school's environmental club, where we advocate for the environment while educating students through fashion, called Trashin. And to any young people listening, please join your local action clubs. We then took our frustration and hopes to the big league. This summer, we went to Washington, D.C. in partnership with Citizens Climate Lobby to meet with the offices of three congresspeople, including that of our congressperson, Tom McClintock, and two senators to push Capitol Hill to sponsor the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. We were surprised at how receptive they were to our proposals and learned a lot about the process of lobbying in the U.S. government. Along the way, we have faced many challenges, the biggest being that we can't vote, but we choose to do everything in our power to show that we're serious about combating the climate crisis, which is why we vote with our voice, our social media, and our dollar. I encourage every single teen, and adult for that matter, to do everything possible for environmental good in the world such as calling your elected representatives in support of climate resolutions and limiting your consumption of animal products. Everything from lifestyle changes to corporate and governmental endeavors all contribute to what our future looks like, including our need to hold our elected officials accountable, in the Tahoe region especially, because there's so much at risk in this beautiful place. We also find ourselves jumping the hurdle of how we as youth are viewed. Teens are traditionally seen as the lazy ones who are living life as it comes, but now, we not only need to be seen as the ones who will fix the climate crisis, but the ones who are, because there is no time to wait for a college degree while the world around us is falling to pieces. In the words of Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish climate hero inspiring youth around the world to speak up, we are doing this to wake up the adults up. We children are doing this for you to put your differences aside and start acting as you would in a crisis. We children are doing this because we want our hopes and dreams back. Take a look behind us. When we're older, what is Tahoe going to look like? Is it gonna be green and eutrophic? Is the land gonna be burnt and the resorts abandoned? How many species will survive? The decisions we make today will determine the lives of everyone and everything tomorrow. We need education, belief in science, and most importantly, action. In the future, Ben and I plan to continue our sustainability journey into our studies and professional careers. Combating climate change is the biggest issue our generation is facing, and we hope to make a long-lasting impact on the well-being of our planet. Thank you. Thank you. So they are not the only young people in the audience. We have 15 or so students from Truckee that are making uh, a podcast about Tahoe, inspired by Tahoeland. Look at this crowd. It's mixed age, mixed race. This is how Tahoe is going to transform in the future. This is how Tahoe is going to move forward with solutions by people like you in this room. And that's what this panel is all about. It's all about solutions. It's all about the future of Tahoe. It's all about equity lake, science. Dr. Darcy Goodman Collins, she's a CEO of the League to Save Lake Tahoe, and they do the Keep Tahoe Blue stickers, which I've seen all over the world. Um, Bill Martinez, he's the executive director of the Family Resource Center in South Lake Tahoe. He works with a lot of Tahoe's low-income people, people who work in resorts, people who work in construction, people who, he called it one day to me, poverty with a view, people who live here and struggle. And then Jeff Shadow's back with us, 
He's the director of UC Davis's Tahoe Environmental Research Center, and he likes shrimp. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Darcy, you left and you came back, right? And now you're holding this baton of Keep Tahoe Blue. What is this about for you? Why did you come back? Why did you come home? That is a great question. I am lucky enough to have been born and raised in Lake Tahoe. So I have a, a deep connection, not unlike a lot of people who have their own connection. Whether you visited Tahoe once or whether you come here frequently, everyone who comes to Tahoe loves it and everyone wants to keep it blue. So I had a, a passion because I was born here and I wanted to do something to keep Tahoe blue. So I worked as an intern when I was in high school that uh, the speech from the boys from um, Truckee was really compelling for me because I remember when I was that age and I wanted to do a lot to come back and keep Tahoe blue. And I had the opportunity to do it in a, in a unique role, but everyone has an opportunity to do something to keep Tahoe blue. Like I said, whether it's from changing your daily behaviors, from educating visitors, or to having a more deeper engagement with our citizen science programs, advocating for good policy, there's a lot we can do to make sure that we protect this beautiful lake. So one solution that's already in the lake are these trillions of shrimp, right, that we talk about in episode two of the podcast that I had no idea were here, and I've been coming here five times a year since I was two. But Jeff, have you eaten any of them before? Um, no. I have. No. <laughs> They're gross. That's <laughs> why I haven't. So... Tell me about this shrimp problem, okay, right? They're in there, they're eating the native Daphnia and like the good critters that keep the lake clean. Moving forward, what's the plan? So this is a, an example of a new solution, potentially, where we're trying to see is it commercially viable. These shrimp actually have, do have a commercial value. They're full of omega-3s uh, that we take in our evening pills, possibly. Uh, so. If we could make them more palatable, we, we'd all be much So healthy. you're going to brand Lake Tahoe shrimp omega-3s? <laughs> yeah. We'll have so I'm going to go to GMC special. and find them. Yeah. Ezra Special. Yeah. Great. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about is transportation, right? There's this huge, glaring gap about transportation issues in Tahoe. It's very linked to climate change. Can you explain that link to me? Well, one of the linkages to, to transportation is that it's one of the contributors to pollution into the lake something like 70% of the nitrogen, nitrogen's a nutrient uh, for algal growth, comes from, from automobile emissions. When you talk about people coming to Tahoe, I think you probably rarely talk to people who say they're not coming up here without their cars. And our locals rarely get around without their cars. So one of the biggest things that we, the League to Save Lake Tahoe, have been trying to do is shift that paradigm and shift that conversation from a, a um, community that has to be car-centric to we have options, we'd love to use them. And we did that through piloting a couple of different opportunities. We brought bike share up a couple of years ago and that expanded into electric scooter share. And really the point was just to show if there's an attractive, fun option, people will get out of their cars, and they did. But there's still no lake-wide system movement towards this. Correct, there is, as of right now, no way to get around Lake Tahoe in a bus or without your car. You have so to take your car ride your bike. So all those particles that go on the road, that get into the lake, make Jeff's life harder cleaning the lake, but it also, there's also this hidden world when it comes to transportation and equity in Tahoe that has a direct link to climate change. Bill, you work with a lot of these people that, are lean, that need this transportation. Yes. What's going on there? 
Not a lot, unfortunately. This summer, <clears throat> and as we have every summer for a number of years, we run a, a program for uh, school-aged children, and we take field trips every week, and we like to get out to different parts of the lake and visit. And this summer, we tried to take a bus to Emerald Bay so we could walk the kids down to the lake shore and hang out for the day and, have, and, and see things that uh, they normally don't experience here in Lake Tahoe because they can't get to those places. I contacted the transportation, the bus service, and there's not a bus. There's no way to get there unless you drive. So it is, it is very difficult. You know, I work with a lot of, of families and children, and this global climate changing is really uh, adding extra stressors to the lives of the folks who are living in this environment because they can't rely on the seasons. They can't rely that a job is going to start, that the ski season is going to start on a particular month or even week. Um, they can't rely on when the summer season is going to start. So on those shoulder seasons, as the tourism industry calls them, uh, people are really trying to figure out what to do and how to, how to fend for themselves, how to put food on the table, how to uh, make sure their children are being taken care of. So those are the unintended consequences of some of these global climate changing issues that are affecting this community. Yeah, we met Laura in the episode all about this. Yes. How real is her reality? Her reality was that her husband couldn't have, didn't have a job for six weeks because he lost his job and was looking at um, multiple jobs just to make it, right? Correct. How prevalent is that reality? Is that everyone's reality here? In the, in the lower income community of the South Lake Tahoe area, there are numerous families that are relying on two, three jobs to make ends meet because of the high cost of living in this area. Like we said earlier, poverty with a view. It is a beautiful place to be. I've lived in this community for 30 years and have enjoyed every minute of it, but it is difficult and it's becoming more and more difficult for our lower income community members to be able to live and thrive in this community. So these are big issues that are gonna take a lot of collaboration to move forward. Is there hope for Tahoe moving forward? You work in the most extreme predicting the grim future. That's why all these people are here. Do you have hope? I was born in the driest continent on Earth. And look where I am today. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I have a lot of hope for Tahoe. Um, because Winston Churchill said, you can always count on, on Americans to do the right things after they've tried everything else. Uh, and I think, <laughs> I think we will get there, hopefully soon enough. What about you, Bill? With this com the communities you work for, is is there a resolution? Well, I think we're working towards some of those resolutions. And yes, it is still a viable community. And our immigrant community that comes and travels here and chooses to live in this community is uh, pleased with the beauty and the nature and the natural environment and giving that aspect to their children to be able to live and to learn about um, this high mountain environment and the beautiful Blue Lake, so much different from where they've uh, traveled from to live here. And Darcy, you kind of deal in hope, right? You hand these stickers that are so mm -hmm. supposed to be hopeful, and there's tons of them that are like that now. Over the course of our branding of Keep Tahoe Blue, we've given out over two million stickers. So that means there's two million people out there who love Tahoe. It's kind of known as the Keep Tahoe Blue sticker is kind of known as the I love Tahoe. If that many people love Tahoe, that's a great baseline. A story that I like to tell a lot about not having hope and then regaining it all in one day is something that I experience every year at our 5th of July cleanups. 
We show up in the mornings. We have hundreds of volunteers, thousands of volunteers that come out to clean up our beaches after the 4th of July. And we show up, and it, it sometimes looks like the apocalypse. Chairs are left. Trash is everywhere. People are having a great time. They're loving Tahoe, but were they loving it to death? Perhaps. So you get there, and you're, you're very disappointed in, in how people are treating and, and um, enjoying Tahoe. But by the end of the two, three-hour beach cleanup, we have hundreds of volunteers who come from all over, not just our locals, not just our regional community members, but we've had people that have come back from Ohio routinely, and they are there because they love Tahoe. They're excited. They clean that beach up in less than, we allow, we allow for three hours. Sometimes it's less than 20 minutes, and it's pristine. So you, you realize that there is this potential to protect Lake Tahoe, and that's a good example of, on a micro scale, how we can extend that love and make sure that we all can have a good impact. And I think for myself, if I can answer the same question, I sort of feel hopeful even though I have heard all the dismal stuff that you have told me, Jeff, about Tahoe that's going to happen and my childhood dreams are going to go down the drain. But I think this podcast is sort of a sentiment of that. Like, there's this work being done. There's this culminating thought. And it's you all. So let's hear some of your questions. Hi, my name is Charlotte Ward, and I live in South Lake Tahoe, originally from Seattle. Uh, my question is, um, I'm curious what the impact of boating is on the lake in terms of clarity and, yeah. Generally, uh, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear this, the overall impact of boats on the water quality, the clarity, the fuels in the lake, it's pretty minimal. If that was the only problem we'd have, it would be great. Um, but yeah, so it's, yeah, some people don't like boats, they don't like the noise. Other people love boats, they love the noise they make. So, <laughs> My name is Lenny Schwartz and I'm from South Lake Tahoe. I've been here 42 years. Um, a lot of other resort communities have free public transportation. They run on a very timely manner. You can walk, get on the bus, go wherever you're going to go know you're going to come, be able to come back. Will we ever see that in Tahoe? The good news is, is other communities have done it. So that means we can do it. And so again, I think the starting point is changing the conversation from people in Tahoe will not get out of their cars. And then figuring out a way to offer these reliable, frequent services that it's harder to use your car than to not. And it has to be coordinated not just with these opportunities, but also making it harder to utilize cars or to get places with your car. So that includes a parking management strategy. That includes maybe opportunities such as if you're in a bus, you get to ride in the bus lane and you're passing all of the cars that are sitting idle, hopefully with their engines off, but aren't going anywhere. So it's, there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of things that we can start implementing and it will we, the League to Save Lake Tahoe, will continue to work on trying piloting these solutions and having conversations with, with other communities that have done that. And it's, we have a lot of momentum now. For better or for worse, our traffic has been horrible lately, so I think it's an opportunity to get the conversation going. We take, take that bad opportunity and turn it into something with momentum. Uh, hi, I'm Luke Jansen. Uh, I live in Incline Village. Uh, it was mentioned a couple of times that all of the Tahoe local communities' endeavors to reverse the declining clarity of the lake might not be enough as, you know, climate change is a global phenomenon. 
I'm just curious, and even though you speculated a couple times, how big of a difference can the Tahoe locals and this community make by itself? We're going to keep seeing the impacts here in Tahoe even if we are able to stop the continued growth of, of the climate crisis. We're going to see those impacts in temperature rising for a long time. So we need to be able to do things here in Tahoe that help to make the lake resilient, and that includes restoring our natural filtration systems like our marshes, our meadows, our streams, decreasing the pollutants that are going into Tahoe, educating the community so that we can lessen the impacts. There's things everyone can do on a daily basis, whether it's just changing your behavior or participating in more extensive community engagement or our citizen science programs. But that could only help the lake for so long before it reaches a tipping point. So it's, a, it's an issue that you can address locally, but it has to be addressed globally if Tahoe's going to remain, if we're going to keep Tahoe blue for generations. Jeff? Yeah, and everything Darcy said, but as well as that, everybody, the whole world knows about Lake Tahoe. What's done at Tahoe, the successes we have are exported, they're translated elsewhere. So what starts off as, as local initiatives and local successes are mimicked all across Nevada, California, the US and the world. So I think that's the hope, is not wait for the world to, to cure the, the climate crisis. It's to start here and, and lead the way. Thank you all for your time and being part of this panel. It's been awesome. Thank you, Ezra. So this is the end of Tahoeland, and I'm left with this little feeling that even as the climate crisis gets more urgent, Tahoe might be all right. And that's because it's a place that so many people love and have poured millions, if not billions of dollars into to preserve. That's definitely not the case in every place under threat because of warming temperatures. But that's why we feel the story of Tahoe matters around the world. There just might be enough people who care about Tahoe for it to make it. So season three, right? If you have any ideas, send me an email. It's ezra.romero at capradio.org or tweet me at Ezra Romero. Tahoeland is edited by Nick Miller. Sally Schilling is our podcast producer. Our digital editor is Chris Hagen. Emily Zentner is Tahoeland's data reporter. Casey Sycamore is collecting your questions about Tahoe and answering them. Our website is built by Renee Thompson, Veronica Nagy, and Katie Kidwell. Linnea Edmeyer is the executive editor. Joe Barr is our chief content officer. And our associate producer is Gabriela Fernandez. Our music is by artist Charles I. He's from Tahoe. And I want to give a big thank you to Edgewood Tahoe for all your help in making this event happen. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Check out our website, capradio.org slash Tahoeland, for videos, photos, additional stories, and more. And I'm Ezra David Romero. Thanks for listening to Tahoe Land from Capital Public Radio. Capital Public Radio.